Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 40. In that scenario, an insured should always check their policy to see what the policy says it has to do. Transactions that potentially they, the banks or the insurers may well see as offering a slightly higher implied credit rating, but those types of deals require a longer tenor. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. It's estimated that around 600 billion euros of support to real economy businesses is provided by the credit risk insurance market, according to a recent survey by ITFA. Credit insurance is crucial in facilitating bank lending and also in supporting trade flows. Trade credit insurance cover is largely used to provide capital relief, i.e. non-payment credit risk insurance, surety, and risk participations. Coronavirus has certainly changed the behavior of underwriters, and we wanted to find out where the CPRI market might be headed in a post-pandemic world. TFG are proud partners of TXF Commodities Virtual 2020, a two-part virtual and physical event in May and November 2020, where we will be joined by experts from across the commodity finance sector, which is currently facing unprecedented challenges. Ahead of the conference, we caught up with private insurance and risk mitigation experts, Simon and Carol from Texel Group, speaking on policies, types of insurance products, and appetite in 2020. Simon, Carol, thank you for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. So 30 second elevator pitch from each of you. Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? Hi, Dipesh. Thank you very much. I'm Simon Besson. I'm a director for the Texel Group. I manage our insurance teams in London, Kent and New York, currently from my office in Kent. Carol, over to you. Yes. Hi, I'm Carol. I'm general counsel at Texel and I work with the broking team predominantly in London, but also offering support to our offices in Singapore and New York for anything that is required on policy wordings and claims. Thank you very much, Carol. So I'm sure you guys are both aware of the TXF working from home challenge. And this is very much all in partnership and in preparation for TXF Commodities Virtual, which is at the end of the month with TFG, our proud media partners of. So to both of you, and perhaps Carol, I'll start with you. What's your top tip for working from home? Okay, well, for me, I think... I have to differentiate between working and non-working time. So creating a space, including, I would say, headspace, that makes me know when it is I'm working. And I do that by making sure that every morning I prepare myself as if I am going into the office by getting dressed in your work clothes. So I am not sitting here in my pajamas doing this podcast. I'm dressed as if I were going into the office. And I think that really does help me. And what about you, Simon? I'm not dressed in my work clothes but I definitely don't have my pyjamas on, so it's somewhere in between. I found that returning 
my wonderful wife is doing a fabulous job looking after our kids and homeschooling them at the moment. But it's absolutely integral for me to have a pair of noise cancelling headphones as not only occasionally can it lead to some expletives being shouted out in the background. So there's nothing like not being able to hear them. So apologies in advance if any foul or rude words get picked up by my microphone from the homeschooling in the background. Simon, let's start with you. And and I guess taking more of a a helicopter view, obviously credit insurance, trade credit insurance is a vital cog in the world of global trade and trade finance. I guess given the current situation, can you highlight the importance of trade credit insurance and why it plays such an important role in the real economy? Thank you, Dupesh. I think um, maybe just prior to starting, I think it's important to identify and maybe split the market in, in two, not by size or not by sort of importance, but more by product. You have the trade credit insurers, who predominantly support exports or uh, sales of goods and commodities on a short-term basis, normally offering their product on a what is called a hold turnover or named buyer basis. And in that market, they have the ability often to cancel limits or to reduce their level of cover in times of stress or, or when they see credit events occurring. And then there would be the other side of the market, which would be the market I say Texella are more of a, a market player in would be the structured credit insurance product or non-payment insurance product, where the main users are banks and commodity traders who are using it for various regulatory capital reasons or balance sheet protection reasons and to secure further supply of commodities, for example. And in this market, the product itself is not cancelable, often goes to longer tenors and can, in a lot of cases, run into to policy sizes of, of many hundreds of millions. So both of those markets are incredibly important, clearly for mobilizing lending and economic development, both in, in good and bad times. And hence, I would say there has been a lot of newspaper articles, or there have been a lot of newspaper articles and time spent at the moment looking at how we can get our, our economies to come through in a, in a V-shaped bounce or, or a, a tick-shaped bounce as opposed to a, a long and depressed form of recovery. And credit insurance will form a vital part of that. And the trade credit insurance market needs support, I believe, in order to, to help those short-term economic uh, indicators to be improved, to return manufacturing, to allow uh, retail supply chains to be back in place. And the structured credit insurance market needs to be there in order to support the more international lending and international trade that needs to occur. So I would say, a long story short, that both sides of those markets have a vital importance in their various economic drivers or economic incentivizers for the coming years. But I would say that you have a bit of a national focus on the trade credit side and you have more of an international focus potentially on the structured credit side. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. I think that's a really important overview. So I guess one of the key products, and perhaps Carol, I'll ask you this, one of the key products is a policy. Can you give our listeners some top tips and also tell us a little bit more about why policies are important and some of the duties and obligations here? Yes, sure. I think we'll have a look at this in two stages. First, to look at the principles that apply if you're using an insurance policy and what are the key 
duties and obligations that you would have as an insured or policyholder under that policy. And then perhaps spend a bit of time looking at what happens when there are problems and how does one make a a successful claim? Because really the starting point in all of this is a company buys an insurance product to protect itself against the risk of loss. So absolutely vital for any company or bank buying an insurance policy to understand exactly what it has purchased and what it has to do to make sure that if there is a loss, that the company is able successfully to make a claim. And what we find here, particularly with banks' insurance policies, where the product is bought for capital relief, so it has a wider use for the bank, the terms of that cover is very clear. We call it a comprehensive non-payment cover, which means if there is a non-payment for any reason, the claim should be covered or the loss should be covered unless it is excluded. So in the extraordinary times we are in now with COVID, there is, you would not find a COVID or pandemic exclusion in a non-payment cover for banks where the exclusions and these types of policies are usually ones which are within the bank's control. So that has not been a factor or something where we should be dealing with at the moment for this type of cover. So talking about why it is so important that an insured understands its terms and conditions and including for bank cover, where the cover is really clear, is the only way that you could trip yourself up and prejudice yourself in making a claim as a bank is if you have not understood and complied with your duties and obligations under the policies. And I always um, try and explain the duties and obligations under a policy as falling within two sort of distinct spheres. The first is a general duty, which applies under English insurance law to give a fair presentation of the risk. And this is a duty which applies at the beginning of a policy before you even enter into the contract. Even if your policy said absolutely nothing about this duty, it would still apply to you as a policyholder or insured. So it's very important for banks to have an understanding of what it means to give a fair presentation of the risk and the duties of disclosure that go alongside that. Now, particularly in bank policies, that the way that that duty is discharged will be documented so that the bank insured will know exactly what it has to do to comply with that duty. Once that is taken care of, the other thing that you always have to have in mind is what are the terms and conditions of the policy? Because those are then the terms that govern your relationship with the insurer. And it's very, very important to understand what the different terms mean in terms of what would happen if you breached those terms because the different types of terms of an insurance policy have different consequences in the event of breach. Many of uh, you will have heard of an insurance warranty and an insurance warranty has a different meaning from a warranty under English contract law. If a warranty and insurance policy is breached, there is a suspension of liability from the date of that breach until that breach is remedied. So these are just things I think to have some familiarity and knowledge of what the terms mean. And then looking at the the key obligations that you would find, particularly in a bank non-payment comprehensive cover, they are usually things that are drafted in a way that they are matters which the banks are able to comply with. For example, the underlying obligation must be legally enforceable. The insured 
or policyholder must keep a minimum retention, usually about 10% at a minimum. And you will also have specific terms which deal with material amendments to the underlying transaction. If there is going to be an amendment to the transaction that's been insured, there is an obligation to consult and obtain the prior consent of the insurers. So these are the type of things I think that an insured needs to have in mind when it's managing its policy, just to keep an eye on what's happening and making sure it's compliant with the terms. When we come to what happens if you have an insurance policy and there is a problem with the underlying risk, whatever it might be, in that scenario, an insured should always check their policy to see what the policy says it has to do because the policy will normally provide for the circumstances which have to be notified. Usually, if there is anything that is likely to give rise to a loss, you have to let the insurers know. It will also have provisions which require an insured to act with due diligence or to take reasonable measures to avoid and minimize a loss. And that's because an insured must take any precautions that he knows he ought to take and not act differently just because he has insurance. And that is really designed to prevent an insured from acting recklessly. So that all leads us to what will happen if there is then an actual loss and an insured wants to make a claim. It's not often that a loss happens and that a date arrives for payments of a loan or an underlying credit and that immediately the insured reaches for his insurance policy and puts in a claim because often there are just delays. And most insurance policies will have what we call a waiting period or a claims assessment period, typically 180 days. And this is a period which passes from the date of the loss to the date that a claim is due to be paid under the policy. And that time period allows time to see if this, any underlying issues with the payment are going to be resolved. But in the event that they're not, and a claim is presented or put in, that claim will be presented in a form which may be pre-agreed as an annex to your insurance policy. It will normally just set out the circumstances of the loss, give some information about the steps that have been taken to recover the loss. And the insurance broker will always be there to assist the bank or the insured party in what should be expected to be put into that claim form and how it would be presented. During that waiting period as well, the insured has an ongoing obligation to continue to mitigate loss and try and take whatever steps it needs to take to preserve any recovery rights. And during this period as well, it's absolutely vital that the insured continues to consult with the insurers on the steps it has taken during this period. In most cases, the insurers will appoint a loss adjuster. Now, a loss adjuster, although it's someone who will come review the claim figures, make sure that the insured has complied with their duties and obligations, and also maybe have a look at the recovery prospects and what's being done to recover the loss. In many cases, the loss adjuster will visit the insured to collect information then we'll report back to the insurers. And there may be a further period of question and answers. And ultimately, the insurers will make a decision on the claim using, amongst other things, the facts that have been obtained from the loss adjuster. And then, of course, hopefully following that process, a claim is paid. So the policy will contain terms which will 
make express provision for these matters. This is a process which insurance brokers go through a number of occasions and they will always be there to help an insured party deal with them. Thanks very much, Caroline. I think some really interesting points and and I guess that resonates with the title of this podcast, KYP, Know Your Policy. Simon, can you give an overview of some of the different products that are available in the market and perhaps how capacity differs from product to product? Yeah, of course. I think, I guess I broadly, for simplicity, would always split our market into you have the non-payment insurance product and you have the political risk insurance product. Capacity-wise, there are many broker-led capacity statistics that that we could all refer to, but broadly speaking, on a non-payment insurance side, you have somewhere between 2 and 3 billion of capacity available, depending on the underlying ownership of the obligor, be it a private counterparty or a public counterparty, i.e. owned by a government. And then on the political risk side, you're sort of slightly above 3 billion in potential capacity. Whenever we say these large numbers and talk to clients about that, I think it's probably almost an irrelevant figure. What we really want to understand is the capabilities and the sort of the the pots of capacity available from the market for deals that are relevant to our clients. It would be highly unusual for a bank or even a a commodity trader, for example, to buy an insurance policy covering a single non-payment event of in the billions of exposure. So I guess the reality is the insurance policies themselves are much smaller than those figures, but it just shows the scale that's available from our market were it to be needed on any transaction. If you look at the tenors, I would say there's been a significant trend or there has been a trend of increasing tenors for the insurers or ability to support increased tenors over the past three to five years, maybe, as they have looked to broaden their exposures that they're able to take away from some of potentially the emerging market commodity transactions into the more structured credit space where they're looking at project finance or reserve-based lending transactions, transactions that potentially they, the banks or the insurers may well see as offering a slightly higher implied credit rating, but those types of deals require a longer tenor. So insurers have extended their capabilities here on a private counterparty. Insurers are are almost in their entirety able to write up to seven years in tenor, and that can even go out further than that. And then on a public counterparty, it's 10 years and further than that. And something we've seen, again, in the more recent past is, is... Insurers looking to support longer tenors when they're sitting behind a DFI, a development financial institution, or a multilateral development bank, an MDB, who brings a form of preferred creditor status or halo effect in their member countries. So insurers have extended their capabilities for tenors and maybe risk profile or risk appetite in countries when they're sitting behind those types of institutions. Historically, we were asked a lot about what's insurable with trade and non-trade, for example. I think it's still relevant and the insurance market has, by regulatory or reinsurance drivers, less appetite for non-trade related exposure potentially, and hence there is a smaller potential pot of capacity. However, I'd say coming back to, to how I phrased it there, just there, it's probably appetite-driven maybe more, rather than regulatory-driven. Sometimes insurers, when they're looking at non-trade, 
are often shown some of the liquidity backstop facilities, the RCFs, for example. And yes, they could support that. And yes, they could support a widening or a broadening of their credit exposures to better quality credits, for example, that offer that are able to attract uh, unsecured finance from banks. But I think it's less now of a regulatory requirement to seek approval, for example, to write non-trade and more of a an appetite. Do insurers want to write non-trade business and will it improve their portfolios? Historically, the non-trade market, I guess, if we look at the types of deals that it was being asked to do, have been asked to cover the liquidity backstops, the RCFs that banks often provide or extend to their corporate clients or their commodity trading houses as clients. And hence, although attractive from a ratings perspective, often to improve the portfolio that insurers have written, in today's market disruption and and where companies and corporates are looking for liquidity, they're drawing on these facilities. And hence, I would say it will be interesting to see in the coming uh, months whether or not these transactions and deals that have been in the crossover rating space in the triple B minus, double B plus rating space will be as interesting for insurers. And I would expect to see a bit of quite a significant level of retrenchment from the insurers in offering support on those types of deals. There's also finally been a a number of new entrants in the market. We've had Convex who have just joined. They were previously, or they are Bermuda headquartered, although the team offering non-payment insurance and political risk insurance sits and will sit in London. And then there's a another new entrant coming in backed by a German insurer in the coming weeks. And hence, it's good to see that our market will grow. It will just be interesting to see what types of deals they'll be willing to underwrite in the coming weeks and months and how their portfolios will be shaped in these times. Great. Thank you, Simon. And I guess just going into those expectations, perhaps throughout the rest of the course of the year. So we have seen significant changes in commodity markets, a mixture of recent events in Singapore, OPEC changes and operating in a very low price environment due to COVID-19. What do you think the impact of this is going to have on CPRI? And I guess what products do you think insurers will favor moving towards the end of this year? I think it's fair to say that there has been a significant change in insurers' risk appetites that's been driven by the COVID-19 pandemic. That doesn't mean that they're closed to business. I think there's been both a commodity price fall, certainly with respect to the oil market, and then the economic impact that might be of besiege or that may end up hitting companies and countries in the coming months and potentially years. And hence, the insurers have had to step back and take a a view as to what they're willing to cover in the short and the medium term. So yes, definitely significant changes in the commodity market will impact the insurer's willingness to support commodity transactions. But does that mean they won't be done? No, no, that's not true. I think you can still see transactions and insurers offering non-binding indications for upstream oil and gas transactions. What's important to understand is, I think in every industry, there are winners in inverted commas, or there are companies and corporates that will come out of this in a manner where they will have maybe smaller balance sheets or smaller asset bases, but will come through this with the ability to pay back their debt and refinance and borrow again. And insurers want to try and support those deals and those obligors where they feel they will be the winners. So yes, you can still cover transactions in the reserve-based lending space, for example. You can still do deals. Uh, From what I understand, I spoke to a couple of underwriters this week and they're still 
seeing secured aviation finance and offering potentially offering even indications in that space because they are seeing now the top, top tier companies in that space offering secured deals to banks to raise money. So I think in any of these crises, you see good transactions that will come from them in the GRL post the GFC. There were secured transactions coming out, which were related to BP, for example, that was related to their issues in Deepwater Horizon, and they needed to borrow and they borrowed secured against, I think, the Caspian assets and their Angolan assets. And at no stage had banks been able to finance those assets. So I think we will see the same, hopefully, coming from this crisis. Where would insurers look from an industry perspective? I think they're looking at industries that they believe are can operate through the cycle. We've seen an uptick in the infrastructure and project finance space, more transactions related to digital infrastructure. We've seen fiber to the home, fiber to the premises deals in France, the Netherlands, Germany, the UK, for example. We've seen data center transactions. We have seen more European onshore wind, solar, offshore wind in the UK, onshore wind and solar in Latin America, for example. And I I, I would argue a lot of these transactions, one would hope, don't have quite the same short-term horizon that the rest of the or the traditional markets commodity transactions would have. And hence insurers who are already a subset of insurers that can support non-payment insurance because these deals, non-recourse, cash flow-backed repayment structures, long-dated tenors, there's already only a subsector of the insurance market that could support these. I'd say they will continue and, and potentially others will look to try and focus on these industries or these types of deal structures, which hopefully will perform well. It's bizarre. Our market always says it's open. For the right deal, it probably is open in any industry, even oil and gas, even aviation. Does that mean you can cover transactions that were not potentially attractive prior to COVID-19 or significantly impacted post-COVID-19? No, it's more that insurers are still open to support their clients and work together with their clients to do deals that they think can stack up. And I think one of the things we always say, and maybe Carol will talk to slightly at the end, is is that you need to partnership. You need, sorry, you need to partner and you need transparency between the two parties, being the insurer and the insured. And in this market, that is absolutely vital. Share information, be willing to answer questions, explain and look at downside scenarios, rerun your cash flow models, do all the things that your credit committee, if you're in a bank, you're asking you to do, and your insurer is probably going to ask you to do. But if you can do that, actually, we've said to our clients, this is an opportunity to show your risk partners that you are managing your risk correctly, and that post this crisis, we hope that the relationships between our clients and our insurers are stronger. They can support even more broad forms of lending in the coming next five, 10 years as this crisis shows who's managed their portfolio as well, shows who communicated well, who was transparent. And it's absolutely vital if you want to do a new deal nowadays with the insurance market to be willing to provide information. It's core, but it's something certainly that at Texel we're very keen to say to our current and our clients that sort of are looking to buy their first insurance policy, that it's best to be transparent, provide the information you can, as if providing that information prior to the policy incepting is absolutely integral in order to build a long-lasting and positive relationship with insurers who are often taking sizable amounts of the risk away from you. Thank you very much, Simon. And I think really giving transparency on, on that risk is absolutely critical. And I guess, Carol, to close this off, I think 
we're undoubtedly likely to see an increase in, in claims as a result of the economic impacts of COVID-19. What are, what are a few pieces of advice other than what Simon has already alluded to earlier? Would you recommend policyholders who either hold or perhaps are about to take out policy in the coming months? Thank you. So I endorse 100% what Simon has just said, and that would have been one of my top three points is to work in partnership with insurers. And Simon is talking not just about if you're about to take out a policy, that open transparency, insurers on board with your deal, but equally, if you have a policy in place already and you're having difficulties with the underlying transaction, it's vital that that is communicated with insurers promptly that the steps you want to take to deal with the problem are discussed with insurers. And I think that is absolutely vital piece of the puzzle. We always say taking out insurance isn't going to make a bad deal good. So insureds need to know when they take insurance, they are taking insurance for a risk of something happening, not improving a transaction. It's there as a backstop. Other than the insurers and the care that should be taken with that relationship, it's, as I said earlier, probably the most important thing is for an insured party to understand its policy. Absolutely critical to know what your policy means and what you are supposed to do and how you are supposed to behave and making sure that you don't keep your policy in a bottom drawer, but you consult it if you are an insured party you read it and you know what it is you have to do. And alongside that, the last piece is I'd say it's so important to also have an understanding of market practice and procedure. And here, very important for you to consult and work with your insurance broker. And your insurance broker will have dealt with probably the same problem that you may be facing for another client. They will understand what has to be done and they're always there to help to make sure that things are done properly and at the right time. Great. Simon, Carol, it's been a pleasure having you on Trade Finance Talks today. Thank you very much for joining us. And we look forward to hearing much more from you at TXF Commodities at the end of the month. So bye for now. Stay safe. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Deepesh. Thanks, Deepesh. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 